Okay, if you would please turn to the book of First Peter, chapter 2. I'll be reading First Peter, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. These verses this morning are just Another example, another warning to say, beware of popular cultural religion. If we take the words of the Bible seriously, we take verses 18 to 20, we're going to listen to it very carefully here for a few minutes, seriously, this is not the new fad hip church thing where people want to flock to. Hey, I'm young, doing my graduate degree. I'm on the road to my vision of life and my buddies finally dragged me to the new hip happening cultural religious church. And that is cool. That fits. I'll add that on to my life and continue on the road I'm on. I was recently in a conversation, and someone asked, oh, you know about the new hip church going on in L.A.? And I, no, I don't, actually. So they started talking about what this was, and it's the, it was kind of like how it was put, the happening thing. And I have no, I have no criticism. I, have no, I don't even know the name of the church. This is irrelevant. What's relevant is how it was said. You know, it's so happening that they got satellite you know, now you've got different branches that happen and you satellite the sermon in. Not necessarily wrong in and of that itself. But what was, the point was made that now it's, on the, it's a good solid church because the lead pastor is orthodox. Small o. Means he, he himself believes in solid biblical Christianity like the deity of Christ, etc. But he made the point Oh, no, no, no. Not that he preaches orthodox doctrine from the pulpit. But it was safe because he believed it. There's a way in which to try to make what we understand Christianity or think Christianity to be, to try to make it attractive to the larger culture on purpose. So that it's cool. But the natural mind, not only according to Paul, is hostile to God. That same natural mind looks at a text like we're looking at this morning 
And the only explanation is, that's weird stuff. That's just weird. Biblical, real Christianity is radical compared throughout history to the popular cultural religions in the guise of even Christianity. The gospel creates radical, otherworldly people. It is a life-changing miracle of God. This is what Peter has been so clear about as we've been going through this letter for months. Just real briefly, let's catch it all back up. This is where Peter's coming from, and it brings us to this text today. He started off saying, church, believers, God reached down and grabbed you. He chose you. The Father caused you to be born again to a living, dynamic, miraculous hope. Your hope now is rooted not in this world, but in a future, eternal inheritance reserved in heaven. And he says, so he left you here. And he says, this same God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has designed trials for your life in order to purify and grow your faith. And then faith, then he just, he doesn't even explain what it is. He assumes that you know what real, biblical, saving faith is by saying, though you don't see Jesus, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, yet you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. Context, while you're grieving with trials inexpressible and filled with glory. And then in chapter 2, Peter said, you see, God, if you're part of His church body, He says He's chosen you, made you His own, in order that you would proclaim His excellencies. He says, this is Christianity. This is the Gospel coming to bear on real lives. And thus, in chapter 2, He says, that's what makes you now on this earth aliens and foreigners to whatever nation, culture, family, race you have belonged to. You are a distinct People. And so we saw last week, okay, but you're still in the world. And he just, he says, you know the wicked nuthead Pharaoh? Christian, be submissive. Not Pharaoh. It's easy to mess up. Nero and Pharaoh, you know, one, one. Obey the laws. That's how now you foreigners act in this world. And then we come this morning to verses 18 and 20. And here's the question. What if you are like, like a lot of these believers in all these hundreds of cities in all these five provinces were originally receiving this letter, many of them are slaves. And so the question comes, what if you are a slave who has an unbelieving and even abusive, crooked master. How is a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated slave supposed to behave himself in that life circumstance that he finds himself in? And the answer in this text this morning is 
weird. It's strange. It's unwelcomed to the flesh, to the natural mind. Let's pray. Father, help me. Help me be faithful to this holy, inspired, infallible, and from all eternity past, purposed text. Help me unfold it, say it again, and again, and by Your Spirit, may we have ears to hear. May we be molded. May You, even this morning, and because of this morning, go on molding and purifying our faith because it is more precious than gold. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, what we're going to do, let's go look at the... I'm going to give a bird's eye view of the logic of the text. And then we'll go back through it slowly. And then at the end, we're just going to ask, what the heck do we do with this? What does this mean for our real life? That's where I'm going. So, the basic brief logic of this text. If you look, really, verse 18 all the way to the end of chapter 2, to verse 25, that's one cohesive unit of thought. You can break it up into two big things. What Verses 18 to 20 that we're going to look at today. Here's the main thing he's going to say. Slave... Be submissive to your masters. Then, verses 21 to 25, is a humongous, way deep down into the earth, foundation. A theological foundation of who God is and His purpose for you, for the church, that undergirds that command that we're going to see today. But we're going to come to that in subsequent weeks. This morning right now, in verses 18 to 20, the beginning of verse 18, see it? That's the main point. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Then the rest of verse 18, he restates it, and he gets more specific. Case We misread what he says, this is what I mean. Not only to the good and to the gentle slave masters, if you have one, but also to those slave masters who are unjust. Then, verse 19 is his main argument. Gives you the reason, well, why? Answer, for, that's what the word for means. A reason for what I just said. For or because this is a gracious thing. When Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then verse 20 says that, that, that statement there in verse 19 is true because, again, that's what the word for means. In other words, why does suffering unjustly find favor with God? Answer, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure 
This is what is pleasing or finds favor with God. This is the word. We always have to answer. See, it's one thing to make a statement. We, we, we have a statement of faith at this church. Yeah, I'll sign off on that. That I believe in the inerrancy. The infallibility. And the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture. But it's another thing to act like it. And take what is delivered in its original context seriously and let it speak. So let's hear it one more time. I'm going to, so you know that, Joe, how are you understanding? Let's say it in your own words. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to paraphrase verses 18 to 20, and I'm going to do it backwards. In other words, so that we can now just turn to logic, the same logic. You go down the steps, you can come up the steps. Okay, we just went down the steps of the logic. We're going to come back up the steps real briefly. Here's his logic working from verse 20 back to verse 18. He's saying, a believer's enduring patiently the suffering they do not deserve, but which comes upon them because of their good deeds as a Christian, that is pleasing to God. There's the foundation. Now, because of that foundation... It does please God when Christians, because of their conscious walk with Him, it pleases Him when in that context they endure grief and sorrows that come from suffering unjustly at the hands of others. And therefore what? That is the reason why, verse 18, that is the reason why you who are slaves are to be submissive to your masters from a deep reverence toward God, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Okay. Let's work our way slowly then through it. First word, servants. To whom he's addressing what's going on here. What's going on in the cultural situation in A.D. 63 that he uses this word. And the word he uses here in the Greek is the word oiketai. It's not the, the predominant word used in the New Testament for slave, which is doulos. Doulos is used like 120, 130 times. Oiketai is only used four times in the New Testament. But they're they're just about synonymous, but oiketai does have a nuance of a household slave. Now, in the context, in the first century, the legal ownership of another human being, it's been around at this time now for a long time in the Roman Empire. About one-third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Okay, just go one, two, slave, one, two, slave, one, two, slave, one, two, slave, one, two, slave. Okay? One third were slaves in a Roman Empire. And then there was another large percentage who were slaves, and they're called freedmen. Even in the book of Acts, you see this little phrase, what the heck is that? The synagogue of the freedmen. They once were slaves. Most slaves in this economic system they had were treated well. 
Most were born in the household of their slave master. They were trained to perform important domestic business, maybe if they're public officials, public tasks. You could not normally recognize a slave at the marketplace. There's nothing about them that says, that person's a slave because of the way they dressed or the color of their skin or their ethnicity. You didn't know unless you actually knew that they were officially owned by another and therefore lacked all kinds of freedom in the Roman Empire. Generally, many of these slaves, masters would want them educated, born in the house, and get them educated. It, 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 their value goes up. It was not unusual for slaves to be better educated than their masters. Abusive treatment certainly could happen and could happen legally, and we see it in our text. Slaves in the first century, they ranged from unskilled workers to physicians, to musicians, to teachers, to accountants, to managers. Slaves in the first century were not at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Those who were free and poor were. In other words, those who had to stand out at Home Depot daily looking for a way to make some money, to put clothes on their back and food in their families' mouths and have a place to live, that was the bottom. So much so that people all the time made the decision to sell themselves into slavery in order to get economic security for themselves. Slaves themselves could accumulate money. They could own property. They could even own other slaves, which were called property. They could accumulate enough money in order to purchase their own freedom. But nevertheless, they were, when they were a slave, owned by another. And their legal status in the society was much lower than others. So there's a sense in which, in the first century, these slaves, I mean, this was their predominant way their economic system worked. There's a way in which, if you get to, how are we going to relate to our idea that we understand as employer, employee? This is about, there's some analogy here, okay? Except you're not going to put up with being physically beat, if that's part of it. And you can quit at the end of the day. But there are ways in which what we hear here, it's called submission to authority. Remember how Peter started last week? Submit, essentially, to all kinds of human institutions. And he started with the government. He started with slaves to a master. When you are working for someone, you're under authority. And we're going to see a lot of parallels which could happen with employees and employers that may be almost just as hard as some of these first century believers had to deal with. So there's a situation, and now Peter says in verse 18, Slaves, be submissive to your masters. And then you see the phrase, depending on what translation you have, with all respect. Now, the ESV the New American Standard Bible, and the NIV all translate that phrase with all respect. 
King James does it literally, New King James literally. The literal, there's three little words, okay? En ponte phobos. Submit how? In all fear. Okay. Now, here's the interpretive thing. The tran translations, you make an interpretive decision. Does that mean submit in all fear toward your master? If so, then the word phobos, fear, could be understood something like this type of respect that you're going to give to th that position over you. And so you would translate it like the committees did here, with all respect. Or does the in all fear mean submit to your masters in all fear? In the larger context is implying of or toward God. I think the second is what Peter means. I, I don't think in the context he's saying submit even to abusive masters in all fear. couple reasons. The word all. He said, when he puts in, not just in fear, he says, all fear. Something about that, just in the flow of this text, and with abusive masters, because they're abusive, fear them all the more, and, and, and submit. With what he just said in the verse before that we saw at the end of last week, honor all men. Love other Christians, the brotherhood. Fear, Phobos. Fear God. Oh, comes to Nero, the, the emperor. Honor the emperor. And his whole point right there was to understand you do owe honor to whom honor is due, even to the emperor of Rome, if he's a nut. But you don't fear him. In relationship, you have a holy, deep fear of God and a love for other Christians. And Show honor to every human being and honor the office of emperor. And then the very next verse when he says, now be submissive to this situation, he's, he's, he means in all fear towards God. Is that clear? That's, then in, the, the, in verse 18, the rest of it, he just gets very clear. We're not just talking to when it's easy. So when you like your situation, you like your employer, you like your boss that you have to go be under every day in an office, he's saying not just the easy ones, the good and the kind and the gentle, but you who have literally unjust, unreasonable, abusive, morally perverse person who has so much control of your livelihood and your life. They're crooked. So, Peter's emphasis now, then, in these verses is submit out of a fear, Christian, a holy fear of God, even to morally perverse slave master authority over you. What do we do? If you just stop there, the questions, and this is good, it's how you, that's how you pay attention to anything you read, and especially Bible. Okay, why? What's he doing? 
Why would, why, Peter, what good is that command to these people in the first century? And the answer, thank goodness, he gives. He says why in verse 19. That's why it begins with the word for. Now, literally, he says, here's why. Because this grace, that's all it says. Meaning, how do you understand that? He's saying this. This, what I'm going to say that follows, finds grace. Now, what I, when the ESV, what they were doing in that committee to come up, I don't know. They must have had so much disagreement. They said, let's just put it in English the most ambiguous way we possibly can so no one knows what it means. So they translated, this is a gracious thing. What does it mean? Well, this grace, this is what I think he means. This, what I, Peter's saying, I'm about to say here in the rest of verse 19, this which is coming this is what counts or finds grace from God. This is what pleases God, counts with God. What does? Quote, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's what counts with God. He's saying the believer who pleases God is the one who endures grief, pain. You ever been so troubled because of circumstances in your life that can cause such anger? Cause you to be so distraught? That's this internal grief. And he says, this is what's pleasing to God. When you endure that, which comes as suffering at the hands of others. Unjustly. See, the unjustly here is key because his point his particular point here is not merely enduring stuff that brings grief to you, but it is enduring the kind of grief you experience because of injustices done to you by your slave master. Implication, employer. Implication, anywhere else in life. The suffering, he says here, causes grief, pain, crying, whether it's because your slave master is so unjust, he's cheating you in money, he's accusing you wrongly of something, you're receiving physical beatings that you do not deserve. He says, that pleases God. Wait, but, but not that. Because there's this other phrase now that really qualifies why the whole thing is pleasing to God. It is enduring this from the motivation as a believer in Jesus Christ, from the motivation of your conscious walk with God. ESV translates it mindful of God. Okay, it's pretty good. It's just literally this. When you endure because of your consciousness of God, Practicing the presence of God to you, who speaks so centrally in the gospel of Jesus Christ 
in all of the promises and commands to the believer that flow out of it. It is not merely God in your own image that you are walking conscious with. It is the Bible conforming us where God has spoken so decisively and infallibly and thus by God the Holy Spirit who lives in us with the Word. We walk in that consciousness with Him. He says, slave, when you're doing that, and you're suffering unjustly and there's grief there but there's something about you that obeys the submission into the enduring patiently because of God and your consciousness with Him. He says that is what pleases Him. It is that Godward awareness of His presence, of His Word, of the truth, of the Gospel, of His commands. And of His promises that are the anchor of your soul that allows this weird text not to be weird, but to be all about God in your life circumstance. And now the reason that, that right there, that verse 19 is pleasing to God is because verse 20. What credit is it if, slave, when you sin? You're doing evil. There is right. There is wrong. You're, 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 you've stolen stuff. You've embezzled. And you get beaten for it. It's not pleasing to God. There's no good there. But when you do good, believe it, there's fruit in your life. And because of that, you suffer. This finds grace. From God. This is pleasing to God. Servants, you who are under authority, he says, submit even when your authority is sinfully unjust towards you. That's our text. Now, back to where I started the sermon. Christianity is not normal. It's not the new, hip, fad thing that we can cloak in such a way to present Jesus afresh. See, here's the reality. And that's for every person in here who is born again. And of course it's true before any of us were born again. Our nature coming into this world, born in sin, it does not ever want to conform to this text. We want revenge. We want to fume in anger. We want to get back and give them a piece of our mind. That's natural. And if you haven't noticed, whether you, if you've been born again, you've come to Christ, and you're in Christ now for the last one year or 40, you know you carry with you what Paul calls, and Peter called a few sentences earlier, the flesh. You're in a battle, Peter said, with the desires of your sinful nature. Even though by definition of being a genuine believer, God has given you a new nature you didn't have. And so, though our natural inclination is to lash out 
But Peter says, take it patiently. And that is a huge but, Peter says. Because that he's saying to the slaves in the context of this book, that fellow Christians who are slaves is the core of your growing in faith. That is, your proactive endeavor to live unto, to walk in the consciousness of God in the gospel, His promises, and in trusting Him even to care for the injustices done against you. That's God's work in molding you, purifying your faith. Why? Because by definition, slaves or free or masters or employees or fathers or wives or children, it is the essence of how he works. Because slaves, for instance, here's our illustration this morning, it is in those hard times, slave, when you have an unjust master, your flesh, your sinful nature wants to cry out and react. He says it's in that furnace of fire, according to chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, that God is bringing up remaining stuff even in you. And He's purifying your faith. And that process, Peter says in chapter 1, of purifying your faith, is so precious to God, infinitely more precious to Him than gold. So, what's the point? Okay, Peter, I think if, if, you know, and if, please, you, we have to wrestle the text. Don't believe your pastor because he says something. Okay. If you get convinced that's what this text, in its context, it seems to say, well, here's the big question. Why? What is God in the large picture of things up to? I mean, even beyond the molding of your, your faith. Is there something about what we are dealing with this morning in verses 18 to 20? Is there some God-centered theology that we can sink our teeth into that somehow fits in a coherent, whole counsel of God that's there in the Bible that it just it fits with this biblical worldview? And the answer is yes. And he just said it a few verses earlier. Do you remember? He says... Are you a believer? He says, it's because God made you one. And God made the church His own possession. He made you a priesthood. He made you a holy nation. He caused you to be part of this great thing He's doing in human history for a huge purpose. Remember what that was. So that you would say how great He is. So that you would show how great he is. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light in order that we proclaim the excellencies of Him who has done that. That's the big picture. There is something about being in this present evil temporal world that He purposefully left us in and will let us die in before 
the great resurrection. There is something about being in this world and reflecting the excellencies of God that even shows up more against a dark backdrop of having the legs of your life kicked out from under you. Slave. I know that you hang out with some other buddies who are slaves and they have good masters and you sit there and wring your hands. How come I have to be under this one? There's something about true gospel living that shines dark, brighter when everything else in the world seems to be gone from you. When the wife deserts the husband or the husband deserts a wife who is a believer, there's something about those supports of life and the pain and the grief and the heartache that when now God mercifully allows one to cling more thoroughly, more clearly, more deeply to the core of the gospel, that Jesus will be seen as greater than he was seen in you before. When you're laid off, it's gone. You lost your livelihood. What do I do now? Trust in him. He will glorify himself through you more so. When you're a slave who has an abusive master, what do I do? It is pleasing to God for these slaves to obey this because it shows that their hope, their real desire for true and everlasting happiness is in God through Jesus Christ. And it's not in the temporal pleasures and supports of the world. Isn't that Jesus' point? Let me tell you a parable about a rich man and Lazarus, poor beggar. Okay. When he's done with that, you had a choice. Pick your life. Which one would you choose? See, he's getting it the same thing. So enduring patiently here in this text flows out of walking with God. It's not merely being abused. It is flowing out of your Godward life in Jesus Christ. And God sees that as a reflection and evidence of His grace in the gospel working in your life. And He is thrilled. He's pleased with that because it points to the source of a real unseen joy and contentment even and especially in that life circumstance. What in the world is that slave hoping in? What's the matter with him or her? Why don't they get it? Why aren't they moving and pursuing happiness where it can really be found which is in your temporal life economic social situation but they seem happy and remember Peter's going to go in chapter 3 verse 15 right and people may walk up to you 
is just watch you and ask you. You haven't said anything yet. Tell me about the hope that's in you. And the slave says, I will tell you the secret. I found a treasure. And then they announced that news, which changed their eternity. It's called the gospel. Our natural, fleshly response to this command, I think, is that this is crazy. What good would it do to tell slaves in that context to do that, or to you with an employer, or to you with a friend who betrays you, or fill in the blank. What good would that do? The biblical answer, the large picture is the glory of God shown through you. This is what the text is saying. See, the big picture from this text is this. For, the, for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, and it's happening week by week by week right now in our present world, God saves sinners. And He saves them from all walks of life. He saves them from every type of race, people, and cultures. He saves them in all kinds of different economic and social circumstances. He calls people out of darkness into His marvelous, marvelous light. Whether you are born in 20th, 21st century America, or you're born in a massive concentration camp called North Korea, whether you're born way back under the Soviet Union, or you're born in China, or you're born in a Muslim family in an Islamic state, whether you're born a slave, whether you're born free, whether you're born on high social ladder or low, you're born rich, you're born poor, God calls human beings for His own purposes, to save them out of eternal darkness in order to shine His light through the midst of all of them. And the question is where you find yourself right now. And in that, the command goes to all of us. Glorify God where you're at right now. You can trust Him. Walk in the consciousness of God. Can that mean anything less than this? Okay, consciousness of God. I know what He has said in Romans 8.28. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who to love Him and who are called according to His purposes. That's walking in the consciousness of God. These slaves clearly have seen the book of Romans at this point. The book of Romans was written and copied and copied and copied nine years at least before Peter wrote this. And it's making rounds. Okay. That's walking in the consciousness of God. Your flesh screams one way. The Scripture says, trust me. And thus, walk with me. So he's saying to us, this morning, one of the ways that God's glory and His excellencies is shown is in, contextually, first century slavery. Where slaves become born again. And out of that born again heart, they have this new Holy Spirit demeanor that is, here's the key, 
so different than anything in this natural world. It's just, where, where does that come from? That's his point. Because that dynamic, the gospel is news that in one sense doesn't include you. It is what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ for His own eternal purposes. And then it comes to you. And if you have found the grace of God to see it, you've come to Him, and now that works itself out as evidence that He's caused you to be born again. And so Peter, all he's doing is saying, show the evidence that your hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Show the world that has blinded that you're looking to someone that is infinitely greater than all the temporal pleasures and treasures of this world. The vast majority of us, church-going people, if we're honest, Read a text like this this morning, and our initial response is, it cannot mean what it seems to plainly say. I mean, if you're wronged, you must lash out. That's natural. Do it. Because that's what we do do. By nature. We know. We are better. We, you don't know it or not, but you've been born with a philosophy. All of us have. I'm a Christian 30 years. I'm preaching this text this morning. Trust me, I wrestle with a philosophy that wells up within me on a daily basis that essentially is radically, I could say man-centered, but it's radically Joe-centered. And everything within me says, I don't deserve that. And therefore, I'm just. And going back to my slave master and giving him or her, a piece of my mind. The call to Christians in this passage, though, is to be utterly contrary to your nature that you were born with. To live out the new nature of God the Holy Spirit in you through Jesus Christ. If we, therefore, by the Spirit, by walking in the conscious presence of God, experience this day, just that circumstance. This day, another circumstance. I almost don't even want to use my life here because it sounds so trivial compared to these slaves. But I'll do it. <laughs> uh, some of you know. Okay, here's baby. Okay, got it? I understand. This is trivial to them. I'm really struggling with Little League where my wife is going to desert me for a week and go to Texas. And I have my five children, awesome spring break. But then we find out it's when it's our duty, with two kids on one team, to work the snack shop. Not just the three times, but we have two kids, so six times, three-hour shifts. And I plead my case. You see, here's the circumstances. We didn't see the calendar. It didn't work out. Can you have some grace? No, no, no. Oh, besides that, it was four. Now it's five shifts. And now the next day it's six. And she knows how angry. And whew, I had a, I, before I sent emails, I have to tell her, please screen it. Okay? 
But it, I'm desperate for this sermon. I'm desperate for this text in this situation. Because I'm really convicted. I just know the things going on inside of me are not indicative of the work of the Spirit of Christ and would not show the beauty and the glory of Christ. And especially when they find out you're a pastor. Okay. Or you're a Christian. In other words, what Peter is calling for here in these slaves with abusive masters, and I'm going to just quote Peter, what he's calling for is in this submission that's supposed to point to this reality. God the Father has caused you to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and reserved not to be getting, gotten next week by your master, but reserved in heaven for you. He said, live that out, slave master. Or just to say it in other words, Peter is calling for the living out of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds. That means like on 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and His Word. But the mind that is set on the Spirit. It is life and peace. That's Peter's point to us. Walk by the Spirit. Trusting the Gospel and all the promises that come out of it. Because you know how Paul ends chapter 8 of Romans, right? He's going he's to lead it into, therefore, if you're setting your mind on the words of the Spirit, the Gospel, the Scripture, if you understand the Gospel, and by the power of Spirit, He's working it in you, He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? How about if you're almost starving to death? Or you have no clothes? He says, yes, I know, down here, it is like we are sheep being used, led to a slaughter. How about life, death? Or he could add, how about an abusive slave master? His answer is no. No, no, because we walk by the Spirit. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord as we pursue consciously walking by the Spirit, by His Word. He's saying from walking that way, by faith in the promises, that is the source. 
That's the ability daily to show victories in our lives that point to the goodness and the glory of Him in whom we hope. And that points, therefore, to the great gospel in the person of Jesus. Father, help us. Help none of us think like my little peon of a life dealing with working snack shop for 18 hours in one week. Help me joyfully do it. Help this prayer for me be an example for all of us in whatever circumstances. Little ones like that or massive ones that I wish I <laughs> would have the problem that I have this week. Father, show your glory day by day in your people and especially throughout this week as we're looking forward we are looking forward to Good Friday. We are looking forward to the greatness of your purposes in slaughtering your Son through the hands of sinful men for us. And your greatness causing Him to come forth out of the grave to resurrection life for our justification. May that be where we set our minds in the context of of work, family, life, and Little League in Jesus' name.